Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, free community college tuition in Rhode Island, cracking down on rowdy beaches on the Cape, and more about the keen New Hampshire white nationalists who made national headlines. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, some of the most heart-stopping, stomach-churning, and head-scratching B-movies from the 1970s are getting another look from fans and critics. It is grimy. It's dirty. It means to get every bit of exhaustion and dirt and sweat onto the screen. And it's not pretty, but it's beautiful. Renowned film critic Charles Taylor joins me to revisit the films he calls the shadow cinema of the 1970s in his new book, Opening Wednesday at a Theater or Drive-In Near You. But first, joining me from New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome back, Arnie. It's a pleasure. Joining me from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Callie. And joining me from Cape Cod, Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Callie. Glad to have you. We're starting with you, Philip, because Rhode Island has a couple of stories that are very interesting about the economic boost that it's finally gotten, or at least it's, um, as the headline says in the Providence Journal, surpassing its pre-recession jobs peak. So all is well on the economic front, maybe, uh, in Rhode Island? (laughs) Yeah, I think the emphasis on the maybe. I mean, earlier this summer, we passed a a significant milestone, which is that the jobs report from June said that there were 496,000 jobs in the state, which those folks who follow the economy closely recognized as uh, finally exceeding the peak number of jobs from December of 2006, i.e. the pre-recession peak. So certainly this was big news for the governor's office to tout as a sign of Rhode Island's recovery. And it is certainly a nice milestone to hear. But the Providence Journal, in an interesting editorial, poured a little bit of cold water on that in an editorial headline, still more a jalopy than a Ferrari. Uh, And they wrote, the happy headline does not tell the whole story. Mimicking a national trend, lower paying service jobs generally replace middle class manufacturing jobs in Rhode Island. The state's GDP growth has been more sluggish than that of the nation. And the state still seems to be first in and last out when a recession hits. Other states suffered less of a decline and matched their previous jobs high much faster than Rhode Island. And they go on to list kind of a litany of factors that they blame for this underperforming public education system, a bad business climate, uh, unfavorable tax conditions. And they conclude by saying, while the long recession that gripped the state may be weakening, our leaders must do much more to transform Rhode Island's economy from a coughing jalopy belching clouds of exhaust to something approaching a well-tuned Ferrari. So we've got a good headline. We've exceeded our pre-recession jobs numbers. But if you listen to the state's newspaper of record, we still have a long way to go. And I just want to be clear with people that both pieces, the one about uh, the state finally being able to go beyond its pre-recession jobs peak, and then the editorial, which says, well, not so fast, are from the Providence Journal. So it's a really sort of well-balanced look at what do these good numbers mean. And I want to just uh, point out one other thing in the editorial that they point to 
a need to attract and develop large numbers of skilled workers because they're attributing much of this recession to lower-paying service jobs. So when you think about that, Arnie, this is something that we're seeing not just in Rhode Island but across the country. Well, it actually, there's another thing in one of the articles I thought was interesting. So they were talking about the fact that they're back at close to peak or passing the peak of the job losses that they'd experienced before the recession. But one of the things they mention is, is that what still continues to lag below their 2006 peak, Phil, was that state and local government jobs have not been replaced. So they're still lagging in state and government jobs. Let me explain some of those state and government jobs. They may be jobs that might help in investment in skills. They may be things, I don't know if they, do they include things like the technical colleges and the state universities and some of those things. If you want skilled workers, you need to have the infrastructure in place to bring skilled workers here, to train skilled workers here. That doesn't happen through air. It doesn't happen just because you created a job. And you just pointed out they have lots of quantity. They don't necessarily have the quantity. Part of the problem with uh, with the state and local jobs continuing to lag, state and local jobs have a couple of things that a lot of people want. They tend to be full-time. They tend to have benefits. They tend to have a retirement package. And they tend to stabilize a community. They also represent an investment in certain things that stabilize an economy. And those are still lagging. So when you look at that whole picture, that's not just true of Rhode Island. You're kind of a microcosm of the country. You know, we're all trying Mm. to figure this out, but nobody wants to spend the taxes. Nobody wants to make the investment. Everyone's dragging their knuckles thinking that somehow it's just going to happen. And business is not in the business, frankly, unless Donald Trump has an infrastructure project that will work for him. Privatization doesn't necessarily answer all the infrastructure needs. And businesses assume that education is not their responsibility. It's the responsibility of the public at large. Well, we're not doing it. So therefore, we're not developing the skills. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That's really the question for Rhode Island. But it's a question for the country. Well, Patrick, that would suggest then that uh, Rhode Island has killed off a whole bunch of canaries on our behalf here in 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 the mines for Massachusetts, where uh, some could reasonably say we're pretty fat and happy from an economic standpoint. Yep, we have a deficit. We got some other issues, but in terms of people working, those numbers have been very strong. And yes, there's some lower-paying service jobs, but we've also been able to capitalize on some skills workers getting jobs here. And we have a pretty strong economy still. And you're talking to somebody who's on Cape Cod where we're the king of low-paid service jobs in, in a lot of respects. Right. I mean, tourism is our business, and, and a lot of those jobs are low-paid service jobs. But I think what we've heard here certainly is, again, there are some skilled jobs that are coming into play, and there are things that are happening here when you look at the biotech and technology uh, jobs here in the state of Massachusetts that are looking good. And again, that's a long-term process that, as was already pointed out, had to do some with the state government taking the lead and pushing for those types of jobs. And they don't come out of thin air. They come from a policy and and this process of, of drawing a GE or whoever you can into a state. And that's happened in Massachusetts. And I think there's been benefits that have been seen by that. Again, Cape Cod, we're a different story. Um, We certainly do have the scientists and and the things that are going on in Woods Hole and in other places, but it's always been a struggle here. That being said, between the tourism economy and some of these other types of jobs, things are doing rather well out here, it seems like, despite some of the other factors that we have to deal with as far as the seasonal nature of things. All right. Well, let's move on from that bleak story to the fun police, Patrick. You're already (laughs) speaking um, down on the Cape. So the fun police are trying to curtail beach activities in Falmouth. But there's also a move to look at some rowdy behavior in Dennis. 
on the Cape. Different sets of issues, but still coming up on the last big holiday of the year, Labor Day, and everybody wants to go to the beach. This is interesting to me. Yeah, it's certainly a perennial story, the, but it does go back in this case in terms of the town of Dennis to July 4th, which is obviously one of the, if not the biggest weekends of the of the summer. And on that weekend, there was some rowdiness at a Dennis Beach, Mayflower Beach. There were allegations of uh, some young teenagers engaging in, let's just say, promiscuous behavior out on the beach. And there were families there and everybody witnessed this behavior. Um, the police were called. There were some arrests. And that led to this conversation in Dennis of looking at the behavior on beaches and making sure that it wasn't getting out of hand. They've now formed a new committee, Beach Committee, a Beach Safety and Monitoring Committee. Excuse me, I got confused because there are already two <laughs> beach-related committees in the town of Dennis. And yes, they have formed another one. This is it was kind of blowing my mind at the time. Set aside the you know selectmen taking care of things. Set aside the Beach and Recreation Department. There's the Beach Committee. There's the Beach Management Advisory Task Force. And now there's the Beach Safety and Monitoring Committee. And it starts to sound a little puritanical in some some respects, but these are people who now have this job of looking forward for the next couple of months and coming up with some recommendations as to how you're going to handle these situations in Dennis in particular. But it's a, a problem that occurs across the Cape. People go to the beach. They want to have a good time. Some of them bring alcohol, believe it or not, and sometimes things get out of hand. In the town of Falmouth now, there's a, a petition that's going to uh, town meeting where the move is afoot to limit the number of activities or the type of activities that you can engage in, including putting up tents, including lawn dart tossing. I thought that went away in the 80s. You can only have single pole umbrellas and tiny domes for your toddlers, but you can't have these big tents that people are taking out to the beach. And believe it or not, they are talking about the problem of personal jetpacks. Again, it was something that I thought wasn't coming until uh, the 2080s, but that's something that's here now, and people are talking about the problems with those sorts of things. So this is going forward as a citizen petition, and there's now a counter-movement, and as you said, those folks on that side are saying this is the fun police really cracking down on something that's not that much of a problem. But again, in Dennis, I'll go back to that, they're cracking down on the alcohol going out on the beaches. They actually had somebody with a um, metal detector out on the beach, a woman who was going out there, and it's something that a lot of people do out here, and she found a cooler of beer buried in the beach as people were trying to get around the alcohol prohibition that had been really uh, tightened up. So people will get around this, but in any case, they're looking in Falmouth to tighten up those bylaws and make it a little less easy to have fun as far as the opponents of this move go. Well, I do want to point out that in Dennis, there are some allegations that some teenagers were having sex in plain view on a beach. And I recall, was it last year that there was... illegal. Well, okay, but I'm just saying there was a woman... Allegations. Yeah, these are allegations that a woman was raped on a beach, and I thought it was around here. So, I mean, this is, you know, you really have to pay attention to that. And we know drunk behavior also is not something you want to have happen, but... I don't know about you guys, but I have been on going to the beach a long time, and I have never been on a beach where I haven't seen somebody manage to get some alcohol out there. I don't know what you do about it, you know, unless some police are sitting there watching you very, very, very closely. But adults or people who think they are will try to get it on the beach. I will tell so you Can I just say something? I'm of two mm-hmm. minds because I am reading from the article that the town's current bylaw was written in 19... 19- and, you know, in 1964, they had no idea that there'd be certain drones and jetpacks and things like this. Well, that's and in Falmouth. I, I'm sympathetic. Yes. Yes. Falmouth. I'm, I'm yeah. sympathetic to that, okay? But there's a part of me that says, 
I want to give some sort of guidance to people to be able to look at conditions on the ground. So, for example, you might put a notice up that during the very, very hectic Fourth of July weekend that there are going to be certain activities that are not going to be permitted because there's too many people. It creates danger and whatever. But then, you know, at the end of August maybe or some early June date, some of the things don't make sense. So why can't you empower people to look at specific times when you want to sort of restrict activity given the fact that you know for sure there's going to be a higher level of activity and then things that are illegal are illegal. I don't care. You know, underage drinking is illegal. Not bringing booze on, it is illegal. Do you have to write a law or regulation to do this? Part of me just wants to empower people to exercise some sort of judicial notice. This should not happen. I don't know who you can have do this, but I think the idea that you restrict all kinds of activity, I don't know, it just feels too overbearing to me. Yeah, and just for any of your listeners who may be confused, sex on the beach in public view is also illegal. And again, that's not something you have to create a new bylaw. So this idea, which I think Arnie was getting at, which is this is addressing extremes. And again, we've had instances out on Nantucket on Nobodier Beach where they've looked at these large crowds that are gathering young people drinking alcohol, Miami Beach type stuff going on. Really, this is a reaction to extremes. and, And you always have to be careful in that case that you don't react to the extreme when the norm is not the extreme in most cases. Well, we'll see what happens. Fun police and more. But I want those beaches open because I love the beaches of Massachusetts. Let me move to you, Arnie, on this electoral commission and the whole voter fraud discussion. Oh, God. So the Democrats have sued to block this crackdown in New Hampshire on voter fraud. I understand there is a hearing on September 12th about a lot of this stuff. But explain who's suing and why. Well, the Democratic Party is suing, and no surprise. You've seen an onslaught with, I hate to say that it's partisan, but it is partisan. Republican legislators and Republican governors in many states for the last 10 or 15 years have been doing more and more in the idea of trying to create something that feels more like voter suppression than protecting the integrity of the vote. I will just put that out there. And a little history about New Hampshire. Remember when we passed, when the feds had this thing called motor voter, where you could register to vote when you collected your welfare check or maybe when you got your uh, driver's license? Well, New Hampshire did not believe in that. We did not want it. We got an exception to that. And the way we got around motor voter was that we were given the idea that you could have same-day registration. Part of the reason why we didn't like motor voter was because we assumed that if anyone was using services, they must be a liberal Democrat. We also didn't want to use a motor voter because we thought it might cost the state an extra five bucks. Okay, So <laughs> it was being cheap, and it was the fear of who might actually register to vote. So we thought same-day registration. Well, now we have same-day registration, and a lot of people do come in on Election Day or just before Election Day to actually register to vote. Well, now the question is, who who are they? And are they here only to vote because they may be part of those busloads of voters that are coming in from Massachusetts on buses to vote illegally to change the outcome of the election, as Chris Sununu said on a show, I believe, that Howie Carr has. So as a result, they passed this law about how to prove domicile, that you have an intent to live here, that this is really your residence, that this is the home that you want. And they're raising the bar and making it more and more difficult to really exercise the idea of same-day registration, to register just before an election, because they are very concerned that the only reason why you're showing up in New Hampshire is that we're a tiny state of 1.3 million people the size of a suburb, and a couple of hundred people that are coming here with intent to deceive might, in fact, change the outcome of the vote. Have they found those people in the past? No. 
Are they imagining those people? Absolutely. Thank you, Chris Sununu. And, of course, this is a state where Donald Trump has always talked about the fact that there was so much fraud here. So I think they're reacting to what's happening nationally. They're reacting to a very close election in the state of New Hampshire. They're reacting to these allegations of people coming across the border. And this is a way to somehow prove something that's kind of loosey-goosey. How do you prove domicile? How do you prove you have the intent to stay? And they're coming up with all these ideas of how to prove it, but it's very challenging and maybe not constitutional. I note that the piece from the union leader says 11 percent of the total votes cast were from people who registered on Election Day. And um, the quote here is that the registrants were young, low-income, and racial minorities, and that same-day registration has a positive effect on the voter turnout of these groups. So just to add... Well, I, is... first of all, I want the proof of that, mm-hmm. okay? <laughs> number one, I want the proof of that. And number two, if same-day registration is something that exists, then you want to encourage people to exercise the franchise and understand their power. Where do you go? You go to college campuses and say, don't sit back. This is not your parents' generation. This is your generation. Where do you go? You go into communities of poverty, and you say if you're worried about what's happening to your world and the policies that are affecting you, then you should, in fact, introduce them to the voting process. Understand what this is about. Certain people should be voting, and certain people should not be voting. The people who should not be voting don't look like you. They are the other, and that's the problem. This just reinforces that concept. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson. You just heard her of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson, Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Patrick Cassidy, news editor of the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. There is a hearing on September 12th, just to be clear, about this election commission. What's happening there? Well, we're going to go to court. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. So, I mean, again, I mean, this is we're living in very interesting times. So there's a lot of stuff swirling around. And I feel sorry for any judge at this point because this is not about what is constitutional. This is more about what is politics. In Massachusetts, mm-hmm. Patrick, our secretary of state said, no, we're not participating in this. And that seems to be the end of it at this moment, the Election Commission and its requirements. I'm not aware of what Rhode Island did, Philip Isle. What happened there? I'm pretty sure they refused to participate as well. And, you know, unfortunately, Arnie, you said you fear this is becoming a partisan issue, and it absolutely is. And I think you can file this under the folder of things that shouldn't be partisan that are, such as the science around climate change and voter integrity and election integrity. I mean, looking at this, I saw a tweet from Bernie Sanders the other day who wrote, the real crisis we face is not voter fraud, it's voter suppression. And I say that because... I think one of the key questions about where you stand politically in this country in 2017 is how you would answer that question. Do you think this country has a voter suppression or voter fraud problem? And it's just this unfortunate information war going on. With that in mind, I did check out PolitiFact, which I generally trust, and found a few articles before today's show. They rated a Fox and Friends co-host saying that 5.7 million, that's how many illegal immigrants, might have voted. That was ruled false. They checked Sean Spicer when he said there's one study that came out of Pew in 2008 that showed 14 percent of people who voted were non-citizens. That was ruled false. They took one of Trump's tweets when he said there was serious voter fraud in California. That was ruled pants on fire. So if people have information and good evidence that this fraud is happening, I'm open to seeing it. But so far, I don't think a lot of real hard confirmable data is circulating that I've seen. And and just a reminder that New Hampshire is one of the oldest states in the nation, that we're one of the whitest states in the nation. So if this 11 percent were young 
people of color, minorities, whatever, it would have been really, really obvious because it's really hard to find here, number number one. <laughs> and number two, I'm also going to say something else. When we hear about voter suppression, I want you to think of something else. This is really a form of white supremacy hmm. because if you want certain people who are the other not to participate, that's exactly what white supremacists want as well. So it's becoming an extension of that. We seem to put it in a separate silo. I think we have to meld it together. Patrick, you want to add anything? Yeah, I guess the whole discussion also highlights the larger conversation about the Electoral College and and Mm. direct democracy. I mean, again, first of all, people going across the border to New Hampshire are going for alcohol to avoid the sales tax and to buy fireworks. (laughs) I don't don't think they're going up there to vote. But again, that border issue of you vote in one state, you vote in another, really does highlight the fact that the state's rights and the state vote that ends up carrying the day in the Electoral College versus my vote actually counts towards who gets elected president. My vote in Massachusetts, you know, is Massachusetts, and that's all it is. In Massachusetts, you pretty much know how it's going to go. Okay. Um, it's the states where that's not the case that, that this becomes Very good the issue. Point. Very good point. All right. Well, let's move on because that's going to go on for a while, and we'll be back to it. Philip Isle, Rhode Island just made community college free, according to big headlines. It's the fourth state in the nation after uh, New York, Oregon, and Tennessee. Let me say before you speak and talk about it that our education reporter, Kirk Carapeza, has said this is a little bit of hype and that it's no more than a scholarship is how he describes it. So it's not really free. It comes with a lot of strings and attachments. So says he. So I just want you to put your answer Yeah, and I would add on to that. I looked a little bit more closely at this before coming on and you do have to maintain a GPA over 2.5, it seems like. Uh, you must be enrolled as a full-time student. It was hard for me to figure out. I saw conflicting info about whether you have to stay in the state after you graduate or whether it's uh, simply highly encouraged. But to backtrack a little bit, Governor Gina Raimondo in January unveiled a plan that she wanted to make two years of college free at not just the Community College of Rhode Island, but uh, Rhode Island's two public four-year colleges, Rhode Island College and University of Rhode Island. What ended up happening, there was this long budget impasse. Things got delayed. We've discussed that previously on this show. But the budget was passed, and at least part of this proposal, not all, went into law, and that was the community college portion. So for now, University of Rhode Island and Rhode Island College are left out. And it applies to Rhode Island residents. Uh, If you're a high school graduate or a GED recipient who are younger than 19, you can get two years of community college paid for by the state. Apparently, full-time tuition for in-state residents is $2,074 per semester. The overall appropriation for this first year, I believe it's a four-year pilot program, is about $2.8 million. And uh, according to a CNN article, CCRI, the Community College of Rhode Island, expects an uptick in enrollment of first-time students next year by at least 200 because of the program. It estimates that between 1,200 and 1,300 students will receive the scholarship this fall. So I think it's an interesting counterpoint to the kind of you know voter integrity stuff we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. I think this is an outgrowth of the 2016 election and perhaps some of the I ideas do. that Bernie Sanders was bringing up that in states that are democratically controlled, you're seeing some ground being won on these kind of Bernie-style ideas about free college. And indeed, when this happened, Bernie Sanders gave Rhode Island a shout-out on Facebook saying, you know, the state just took a major step. Uh, he said this is not a radical, implausible idea. It's fact what many of our colleges and universities used to do. It's what countries around the world have done. And he finished by saying our job now is to make all public colleges and universities in America tuition-free so that every American who studies hard in school can go to college regardless of how much money their parents make and without going 
deeply into debt. That reality is a little bit closer in Rhode Island, albeit with a fair amount of fine print. Right. I just wanted to point out that Kirk Carapaz, again, this WGBH's correspondent and managing editor for education, higher education, pointed out that he thought this was more in Rhode Island of a scholarship situation than, let's say, Tennessee, where he credited them with actually more of what you would think of if you think about making community college free. So and it's all in the details again. Can I, so uh, can I just, t- to that oh, yeah. point, just one thing. Uh, 2018 is an election year for Governor Raimondo, so mm, yeah. I don't think that's irrelevant to this conversation. Okay, so quickly, Arnie. Uh, Tennessee, I want to go to Tennessee. And let me just tell you why, because Tennessee is such a quirky state for me. It's a Republican state. I believe it recently had a Democratic governor and it has a Republican governor now. But it was the first state to come up with a tuition-free program in 2015 before Bernie. And it also, this year, it's expanding it to include all adults that are eligible to be able to go to school in Tennessee. Tennessee is also the place that probably did the best expansion of Medicaid. So as we're all talking about, you know, the northeastern states or Oregon and New York and Rhode Island doing this, I want to understand Tennessee because they're doing some remarkable, inventive, creative things in the states you would not expect them to do it. So Tennessee was first on this, good on Medicaid expansion. I want to know what that model is because I would love to replicate all over the South. Well, the only thing I would say as to put a button on it is I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, where real barbecue is made. Let's move on (laughs) (laughs) because we've done that as well. One just quick comment from you, Arnie, because some people might have been surprised to know that Christopher Cantwell, who became kind of a star, if you will, of the Charlottesville, Virginia, I can't even call it up, I don't know what to call it, a riot, uh, disturbance, he was on a uh, featured on a video that Vice did that sort of has gone viral, but he was out in front talking about the, what white nationalists want, what he wants, the fact that he thought the young woman who was killed there, Heather Hare, um, was kind of in the way, and it you know he didn't see it as a problem. Anyway, my point is he's from Keene, New Hampshire. Right. And I wondered if you would just comment on his local ties and then we'll so move on. Real, real quickly, he was born in Stony Brook. He uh, ran for Congress in New York. He came to New Hampshire not too long ago because we have the welcome mat out. If you are probably a libertarian or a racist or believe in the White Free State Project, he said he came because he felt like this was a place where he could find a home. So you have to start asking yourself, what is it about New Hampshire that's putting out this welcome mat? But I think the most important thing about Chris Cantwell and the fact that he was exposed by Vice, the fact that he just turned himself into the Virginia police on three felony counts and maybe a misdemeanor, is that he is exactly what the problem was. This was a decision made by a local community in Virginia in Charlottesville. They made a decision that they wanted their statues to represent their ideals and not necessarily the mistakes of the past. They made a community decision to take down the statue. The fact that people like Chris Cantwell comes from Keene, New Hampshire, drives all the way down with his racist, white supremacist, over-the-top agenda. But the fact that he was there should tell you something, because this was not a local protest. These were people coming in from the outside to protest. Who are they and why are they here, number one? When you read his background, he is a profile for everything you fear. And the fact that he lives in New Hampshire really scares the heck out of me. But again, remember, this is a state that uh, shouldn't surprise me that a lot of people who perhaps are racist or white supremacists might find a home here. We were the last state to embrace Martin Luther King's birthday in the United States. We, for a long time, have had a difficult ability to sort of embrace our history and understand the sort of more diverse future, which I think we're beginning to see in places like Manchester and Nashua. But I think Chris Cantwell is exactly 
the example of the problem. People should go and watch Anderson Cooper's interview with the journalist of that Vice piece on CNN. He asked him very specifically in response to President right. Trump's comments, were there any simple history enthusiasts who wanted to protect the statue who got caught up in this white nationalist thing, as Donald Trump suggested? And this reporter said flat out no. There was right. nobody here by accident. They were Thank all here you. for the same reason. The Vice piece is really quite strong, so people should, if they want to know more about Chris Cantwell from Keene, they should definitely watch it. That was uh, Arnie Arneson and Philip Isle weighing in. I want to go to you, Patrick, because this piece about part-time Truro residents mad about having to take on more taxes because the town is going to give a tax break to year-round residents. This could be big. <laughs> I mean, it's already happening in other cities, but in a state, rather, with as much uh, beach residency as we have. This is interesting. Big in a very small town. Let's yeah. just be clear about that. Truro is the smallest town on the Cape. It's got about 2,000 year-round residents. And that's the issue, is they're worried about losing young people. It's been something we've been reporting on for years and years, this concern about losing young people who are going over the bridges and not coming back. In this case, the Board of Selectmen in Truro voted this week to give these full-time residents a break. And the idea is the more you give them a break, the more people will become full-time residents. They'll pay taxes. They'll add to the community. Now, the part-time residents, of which there are a lot in Truro, 76% of the taxpayers yeah, in Truro amazing. are part-time residents, yeah. which is amazing. They will have to pay some more. And again, just to give you some perspective here, too, these are not small property values. The properties in Truro are quite expensive, $650,000, I think, maybe something like the average. For a year-round resident with that average property, this break right now would mean $691 off their tax bill. Not insubstantial. For me, it wouldn't be insubstantial mm -hmm. in any case. And then the part-time residents would pay $228 in addition to their tax bill now. So again, you could think, okay, there's a lot of high-priced properties out there. What's the big deal? It's your second home. Why don't you mind paying that? But I spoke to a woman this week who has this small, tiny little unit that the value isn't six hundred fifty; it's it's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And for her, this is like her respite. This is where she comes for when she comes to the Cape. She rents it out. She has to pay other taxes. And again, her argument was, you know, we're already paying all these other taxes, and now this is just one more thing on top of that. This is not a big, expensive McMansion that everybody talks about. And she says this could be the breaking point. You could drive a division between the full-time residents and the part-time residents. And this really would just divide the two sides. As you mentioned, it happens in other places. Provincetown, Barnesville, Nantucket here in our area are offering this 20 percent uh, exemption for year-round residents in Tisbury on, on Martha's Vineyard offers an 18 percent exemption. But it does have the potential to drive a wedge between the, yeah. the year-rounders and the part-timers. All right. I'm going to leave that there <laughs> because I want to squeeze in just this really good news story from Providence, Philip, about the 80-year-old judge who's gone viral now with hundreds of millions of views, <laughs> Municipal Court Judge Frank Caprio, because he's been kind and thoughtful in how he meets out justice. Oh, I just love this story. I mean, for Rhode Islanders, you know, Judge Caprio is as Rhode Island as the Paw Sox or Dell's Lemonade. I mean, we've known him for a while because his show, Caught in Providence, has been on public access TV here for as long as I can remember. But thanks to the Internet, some of these clips, which are now uh, still being produced, and apparently uh, it's his brother who does some of the filming, they've gone viral. And we're talking tens of millions of views for some of the clips of, for people who haven't seen the show, it's kind of like a, almost a Judge Judy-style thing, but it's a real traffic court, and people come in and they tell their stories. 
And as the article indicates, Judge Caprio has this kind of folksy way of dealing with them. In some cases, if they have a particularly hard luck story, he'll, you know, give them a break. One of my favorites, a guy comes in with his five-year-old son. Judge Caprio invites the kid up, puts him on his lap, asks him how much he should fine his father. The kid says $30. <laughs> and then they, they bring it down and he says, well, if you just take your son out to breakfast, you know, I'll, I'll let you go on the parking ticket. So it's this really funny hometown, yeah, hometown yeah. show yeah. that's now getting apparently – uh, according to this recent AP article by Michelle Smith, one video has been viewed 170 million times on Facebook, and it has subtitles in nine languages. So it is nice to have kind of a feel-good story every once in a while, and, and I think Judge Caprio is well-deserving of that. That's where we're leaving it, because I wanted to be happy at the end of this conversation. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> okay. I thank you all for joining me today. <laughs> You're thank welcome. You. Thanks. Arnie Arneson is host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Patrick Cassidy is the news editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, The Godfather is considered one of the greatest movie classics of all time. It hit theaters around the same time as Cisco Pike and Hickey and Boggs. These are movies that renowned film critic Charles Taylor says represent a different kind of classic film. He joins me to talk about the shadow cinema of the 1970s. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 